Hi, this is the Way Family Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening. We invite you to join us in person Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at Lawford Middle School here in Tucson, Arizona. You can visit us online at wayfamily.church. Before I get started here, I want to ask you a silly question. Is it just me or is it you too? Have you ever opened the trunk of your car carefully because you're worried about the groceries falling out of them? Yeah? Yeah. Is it just me? Like my wife especially is very attentive to that. Like when we get home after the grocery store, I kid you not, she's like a baseball catcher or a football linebacker. She's ready to go, you know, because as soon as we open the trunk of the car, something might roll down. And there's no way we're going to let something that we just purchased from the grocery store nowadays, very expensive, go to waste, right? And so we're ready. We're careful. And so she'll position herself like such, and she's really careful. And she's, as soon as the door opens, she's like, you know, reaching in, making sure that nothing falls out. But why, you may ask? Because we park on an incline. Because our driveway goes up a little bit like this. So when we open the trunk or the lift gate of our, of our SUV, things tend to roll out. And so, you know, you think this is the, the law of gravity, right? This is the consequence of the law of gravity. Basically, the law of gravity states what goes up must come. All right, that's the law of gravity. And there's also another reason, Murphy's Law. You know Murphy's Law? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And so she's ready. We're both ready. She's more ready than I am. I, I promise you that. And you see, the reason why is because we've lost, we've lost a few good jars of marinara before. <laughs> you know, and it's it's really heartbreaking. And let's just, you know, may they rest in pieces. And so now we plan. Now we're strategic about how we load up the groceries, right? Now I look for those heavy things that won't roll or anything like that, and I put them right against, I create a wall so that anything that does roll, you know, is stopped by that. And so planning is important. And so far since we've planned the way that we position our groceries in the trunk of the car, we've had less casualties. Unfortunately, however, we did lose a head of cabbage the other day. But it wasn't because we didn't plan for it not to roll out of the back, but because it rolled to the front, into the abyss of the back seat of the car. And so we lost a really, really good head of cabbage. And so now we plan for that as well. Planning is important. That's the point. <laughs> Planning is important. It helps us see in advance those things that can help us achieve our goals. How many of us plan? How many of us have goals? Yes? It's important. It helps us see how to achieve that goal. It helps us get there. And it helps us see the things that we, uh, that, that we sometimes we notice can prevent us from achieving that plan. And so plans will force us to strategize. It'll force us to see things in a way where we're considering the details. Because when we don't plan and we just go for it, we kind of are surprised left and right, left and right of the things that we just didn't see coming. But when we sit down and we plan, while well, we see those things, and it causes us to really strategize and rethink. Personally, I'm a visionary kind of person. I have a big picture in mind. That's how my, my brain works. And the Lord has graciously blessed me with a wife who's detailed-oriented. And so when I have really great ideas and I say, hey, that's what we're going to do. We're going to reach for the moon. She's like, yeah, but you don't have a rocket ship. You know, those kind of details. And so they're important for us to consider and, and, and determine, okay, 
What is of priority? What should we be more responsible with right now? What's more important among all the other things so that success would be achieved? Because when we plan, there's a goal in sight. But, you know, not all plans are the same, right? Not all plans uh, even, even are similar in nature. Some are designed to aid or to help or to prosper or to achieve something that you would determine to be good, right? And other plans, unfortunately, are designed to sabotage or to prevent others any kind of prosperity. So there's two different kinds of plans, like when you play chess. When you're playing chess, you're strategizing and you're actually planning for both. You're planning to protect your pawns. As the little guys go up there, you wanna bring someone alongside of them so that they're not uh, uh, threatened, right? And at the same time, you're thinking like, how am I gonna get these other little guys up there so that they can get promoted and everything's gonna be great, we're gonna prosper and we're gonna be great, but then there's also the dark side of the plan, right? You're thinking, how can I destroy my opponent? How can I keep him from advancing on me? How can I show him that I am supreme at this game, right? Did I say that out loud? Is it just me who thinks that way? But we do strategize in that way, and there's two different kinds of plans. And so as we continue in Esther chapter 5, we will look at two different plans. We have a plan for salvation and a plan for destruction. And so just a quick review, we know that a motion had been set by uh, King Xerxes through his prime minister Haman, and it was set against the Jews. Death would come to the Jews. Why? Because Haman convinced Xerxes that they were just bad news. Very, very de uh, uh, limited details, and nevertheless, he was given the authority to go forward with it. The king, via the prime minister, minister again, has now passed an irrevocable law, because as we've learned, any Persian law that was passed was irrevocable. In fact, if you needed to neutralize that, you had to pass something else to do that, to amend it. But every law was irrevocable. You could not erase it as if it never happened. And so this irrevocable law would put, the, would put every Jewish person of Jewish descent to death. And so this move, or this plan, as you will, was birthed out of Haman's hatred for Mordecai as far as we see here in the book of Esther. And so Mordecai responds to this plan against the Jews with uh, mourning. We saw this last week with grieving, with prayer, with fasting, which is a great response to these situations. And he goes where he's able to communicate with Queen Esther because he didn't have a cell phone back in the day. He couldn't shoot her a text message. And so he goes to the outside of the king's court dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And sure enough, he is able to communicate with her because apparently she had no idea what was going on. Apparently, this was news to her that the king had decreed a plot against the Jews. And so now he communicates with her via mediator, right? And so they're talking and, she, and he uh, it does a great job at informing her and exhorting her. He says to her, and we'll just review really quick, chapter 4, verse 13 through 14, it says, or Mordecai says to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, you have a message, it's now. Now is the time to reveal yourself because she's been kept kind of hidden. Her, her Jewish uh, background has been kept hidden, but Mordecai saying now is the time to act. Now is the time 
to do something. And if you remember, Esther was a little bit hesitant at first, logically so. She was ration, rationalizing and she had a really good reason to say, no, that's something I shouldn't do because it's of great risk for myself. But nevertheless, she determined herself. She resolved herself to go and put herself at risk. And so the second time that she responds, she responds with a sacrificial courage. And it's so encouraging. It's so uh, I think just inspiring. And she, what she does is she petitions for everyone to fast and pray on her behalf, for everyone to fast and pray and intercede for her because what she would do could cost her her life. For she would go to the king uninvited, right, unsummoned, and, and that essentially was against the law unless he reached out his golden scepter and permitted her to go in here. Now this King Xerxes though, he's got quite the reputation. This is not someone that you can kind of just anticipate, you know. Uh, if, as far as I'm concerned, he's very wishy-washy, very emotional. You never know what kind of mood he's in, and he likes to exercise his dominant authority. And so you're not sure of what's happening, and so that's where we are. Let's continue now in Esther chapter 5. Read along with me in your Bibles or follow along on the screens, and it says this. On the third day... Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting in his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of or to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courts, she won favor in his sight and he held out to, to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. When Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, then she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of the kingdom. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Well, bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is it you wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow. And tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions in which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. 
This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, as we uh, dissect it, study it, Father, we ask that you would reveal its intention, its message, its purpose for us, Lord Jesus. That we would be able to receive it well, that we would be life-transforming so that we're well-equipped for the calling that you've put in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin today, dissect this passage with that first plan, and that's Esther's plan, which is ultimately also the Lord's plan, right? A plan for salvation. This is the good plan. And so the first step of action, step one, is that she takes the first step of action. Okay? That's a good plan. A good plan requires action. A good plan requires you to do something. So she has prayed and she's fasted for three days now. This is three days later. And I'm confident that Mordecai did the same thing with his friends and everyone else and all the Jews. They prayed, they fasted, they did what they did. They had to do. They came to the Lord. They asked him for strength and direction and, 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 and everything that they needed. And so being confident in the Lord, she puts her faith in him into action. And so Esther now moves forward with the plan. She is now a participant of the Lord's plan for salvation. Verse 1 tells us that Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner courts of the king's palace. In other words, she was in the highway to the danger zone. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is what she's about to do. She's about to go and put herself at risk and put herself in the face of danger. But she's ready. She got out of her pajamas and she got her dressed up. She did her glow up, right? And she's ready to go. She's got her royal clothes on. She was ready to be used by the Lord, and she was confident in him. A commentator states, I was reading this, and I love this. I'm going to share this with you. People who hope to be used by God must boldly put themselves in a, uh, in a position where God will walk or will work through them, rather than sitting back doing nothing, passively hoping or waiting for God to do something. You know, we are to make much of Christ, not just to wait around. We're not just to wait around for someone else to do something or for God to just do something. Can he do it? Yeah, Mordecai said it clearly. Hey, someone else will do it if you don't. But we as responsible people of the Lord, we are to make much of Christ. We are to make much of his gospel. We have been entrusted with this beautiful message for salvation. Much of the message that, that he has given us is not just for us to hold on to, but to also declare and to share with others. And so we are to make much of it, not just, not just sit back and, and do nothing and just wait and twiddle our thumbs. I mean, how often do we pray for something, not because we're still trying to discern the Lord's will, but we're simply trying to delay. This is just me who's done that. It's like, hey, Brandon, will you consider such and such and such thing? Let me pray about it. Day two, Brandon, did you pray about it? I'm still praying about it. <laughs> what, what about now, Brandon? I'm, you know what? I'm still praying about it. And then that person gives up on me and I'm thinking, yes. You know, <laughs> how often do we do that? You know, we're, we're, we use an excuse that we're going to pray about it, but the whole intention is for delaying. We say, let me pray about it. And again, get nothing. And sometimes you pray about it. And sometimes we do pray about it. And the Lord says, go, do it. And then we're like, no, I'm not going. Right. And so what happened here? Like, why are we, why are we too afraid to move forward into action? Perhaps it's threatening. Perhaps it's uncomfortable. Perhaps it's something that we don't necessarily feel like doing, but we have that conviction that we must do it. Right. And so this is, this is kind of something we need to consider. I feel like this is important for us as the people of God. If we want to see a difference in this world, we have to do something. 
You know, we have, to be, we have to be fearful of the Lord. We must fear the Lord. We must walk in obedience according to his word. We must do this. We shouldn't wait to do the right thing tomorrow. Let's start today. Do the right thing today, today, right now. Don't wait for tomorrow to do the thing that you know is good and is right and is part of God's plan for salvation. Amen? Because the fact of the matter is that tomorrow may not come. You've heard this before. Tomorrow isn't promised. You have today. You, you were able to open your eyes and take a breath today. Tomorrow, you just don't know what's going to happen. James, in fact, the brother of Jesus, says to us all, as he was also exhorting the, 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 the church outside of Jerusalem, the diaspora, he says in James chapter 4, 13 through 14, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and... and, and uh, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, for a little time, and then you vanishes. In other words, life is just so fragile, sensitive. It doesn't promise to you. The Lord gives you that life. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You see, Esther had no time to lose. She did not delay with her commitment. She moved forward in action. And that is so important, so key for us. Like Jesus, the time for praying was finished. Remember when that moment when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took the time, he fasted, he prayed, and then that time was over. And he said, let's go, my betrayer's here. Let's go. Like, can you believe that? Like, that's, that's amazing to me to think that. See, Jesus didn't delay. He just went forward with the plan of salvation. This is his plan, ultimately. And unlike Esther, who wasn't sure if she would live through this situation, Christ was certain he would die. Think about that. Christ knew what was ahead of him, and he still went ahead with the plan. Aren't you grateful for that? For if the Lord Christ Jesus didn't do that, what would be of us? We would be doomed. We would be doomed to what we were actually owed because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of life in Christ Jesus is life everlasting. I'm so grateful that he moved forward the plan knowing what was ahead of him. Now, let me ask you this, and this is a question for you to think about deeply, a couple, in fact. Is there something you're delaying? Are you currently praying on something with the intentions to delay? This is self-examine, okay? Don't raise your hand and say, yeah, me. Self-examine, are you currently delaying in something? Are you currently praying on something with the intentions to delay? Let me, let me give you a word from the Lord. From Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it says, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's your answer. Go, do something for the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. Go and do something. But there's a promise that follows with that. In chapter 28, verse 20 of Matthew as well, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen for that. Thank you, Lord for that sense of, of encouragement and comfort, knowing that you're with us. Now, my mom, you guys don't know my mom, but she's a doer. That lady does not know how to rest, you know? And she's always actively in doing something, and I've always, you know, I told you I'm a very visionary kind of person, so I would share ideas and whatnot. I remember something she would say to me all the time, and I'm gonna share it with you. This is what my mom says. If you're going to do something, you gotta move. Like that. You, you're gonna do something, you gotta move. That's, that's what she would say. In fact, if you want to write that down, it's a good quote because I've not forgotten that. Anytime I, you know, I, I think I have an idea, I should do something. I should do, should I do something? I hear my mom, if you're going to do something, you've got to move. Okay, I'm going to do it. 
You know, it's just important for us to take that first step of action, take that action in faith. It's important and also experience the Lord's favor, because when we're moving in faith, we're moving according to his will and to his word. We're going to experience some kind of the Lord's favor. Now, look at verse two. I think it's very good. It says this. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to, the, to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of that scepter. Wow, what a scary moment until then, right? Up until that, that point. What a scary moment. And the Lord sees her through each and every step until she reaches and touches the golden scepter. The Lord has honored her approach. She prayed, she fasted, she prepared, and she trusted the Lord. She moved forward into action. She approached the king, and it is almost as if the king was happy to see her, actually. It was like, Esther, you know? It's like, who is this guy? What did you do with him, Esther? You know, she's, inv- she's advancing and winning the favor of everyone around her. The Bible tells us that she won favor in his sight. Now, I want you to notice that this is an active expression as opposed to a passive expression, which would be, and she found favor. But for this entire story, she's been winning favor. She's been doing things to actively win the favor of people. And she's advancing in the plan that the Lord has set out for her. She's moving strategically and in faith. What a combo to move forward with strategy and with faith. That's good stuff. In fact, that's fresh off the press. Write that down. That's really good stuff. Strategic and with faith, right? And so step one, gain access and live. Check. She got that done. Step two, effectively address the king. Because what she needs to tell him is no easy thing to do, right? And so Esther's approach is totally selfish as we see here. She had the bigger picture in mind. Otherwise, why didn't she just save herself at that moment? You know, if I'm Esther, if I'm thinking about this and the Lord or the, the, the king has granted me my life at that moment, I'd just be like, hey, there's a decree. Would you save me? And then we can prove Mordecai wrong that I would actually live through this. You know, maybe she could have done that. No, she had the big picture in mind. She had the, the, the plan in mind. And the plan was not just to save herself, but it was for the salvation of all of the Jews, all of God's people. Again, not just herself. Look at verse three now and notice the difference in the disposition that we see Xerxes in here. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Like, who is this guy? Do you remember chapter one? Do you remember when we read about Xerxes? Where's that crazy, drunk, conceited, narcissist, dense, and depraved Xerxes? See all those words I used to describe him before? This is not the same guy. Something's going on here. Like, what did you do to him, Esther? It's working. It's good. She has won favor over him. She has behaved in a way that she, that the Lord honored her for, right? And Esther, you know, was offered half of the kingdom of Xerxes. Now, anytime I'm reading the Bibles, I put myself in those character shoes. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, half of the kingdom of Xerxes. I'm thinking, if he offered me that, that means I could save half the Jews right away. That's half the kingdom, half the Jews. I would ask for the, you know, the provinces that have most of the Jews. Yes, why not go with that plan? No, again, Esther had a big picture, and I'm so grateful for that, because if I were Esther in that moment, half of them would have died, you know? 
But she had the great picture of mind. She was being moved according to the will of the Lord. And so let's go now and look at this strategic plan. Strategy is in place with her faith. Let's go into chapter, uh, verse 4 uh, through 8 here. And it says, And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Yeah, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther asked. And so the king and Haman came to that feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to her, What is your wish? By the way, if you ever want to convince a man of anything, feed him first. It's a great idea. You know, she says, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, then come back to another party tomorrow. It's like, what? What just happened? Okay, wait. First, she was prepared, as you can see. She always had that feast in mind. So whether she made it or not through that first step, she had prepared a feast. There was a banquet prepared for that same day so that we know that Esther was moving in faith. You can't do that last minute, right? She had this thing going. She was ready. This was part of the plan. And did she just stall? Is it just me or did she just stall? Like, did she just have a really great opportunity to talk to the king and Haman there? Does she panic or something? I'm scratching my head as I'm reading through this. It's like, why would she wait another day? Like, she had them right where she wanted, both Xerxes and Haman. But again, she had a plan and she was being strategic. And Xerxes offers her half of the kingdom, and I believe it because, again, he says it again. He's thinking about it. But here's some reasons to consider why she may be thought next day, all right? And I think these are very, very helpful. One, she was asking for the reversal of, of an irreversible law. There's a big ask there, if you would, and it was sponsored by Haman and signed by Xerxes. So this is a big ask. You have to be careful with how you're going to ask this. Another thing to consider is that this granted request, if, if it would move forward, would cost the king a lot of money. After all, Haman promised a lot of money for this, right? And then three, she knew that the king didn't want to be embarrassed or lose face. It's important for that. She was looking out for him. Remember Vashti who embarrassed King Xerxes? Remember her outcome? She's like she's being strategic here. Like she knows a thing or two about him and she's being careful. And then another thing to consider is to effectively make the request, she would also have to reveal her hidden Jewish identity. So there's a lot of factors here. And so it's like she's thinking through them and moving carefully along with them. And so again, the perfect opportunity presents himself or his, itself and she goes right for the jugular. No, she does. She says, come with me to another party. Now again, this is part of the plan. And Esther's being strategic, she's being smart. She's being patient. Look at Matthew 10, 16. It's almost as if she had this passage memorized from the, words, from the mouth of the Lord. It says, Behold, I am sending you as, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is Esther, right? She's doing exactly this. This is so necessary because of what she was dealing with, what was at stake. And yes, every Jew in Susa was at risk. Every Jew in Persia was at risk. Un she, it was under that threat. Now, I want you to think about this. I was having this conversation with my friend Dave here last week. Do you know what this means? And that's, it's very important for us to consider. If every Jew under the provinces of Persia were at threat, that means that Jerusalem was also at threat. Because at this time, simultaneously, Ezra and Nehemiah are rebuilding Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem. This is happening at the same time. And they're doing it under the permission of King Cyrus, 
which was uh, King Xerxes' grandfather. And so we know that this is a province of Persia. That means that Jerusalem itself is under threat. And whether she knew that or not, was thinking about it, probably so. She had to be careful because it could cost the promised land. Does that make sense? Like there's really more to it than meets the eye here. And so that, that plan for destruction, I think, had that in mind because obviously it came from Satan. And so I want to now look at that second plan, the plan for destruction. Because Satan's consistently scheming against the people that the Lord loves. He's consistently looking to destroy that which belongs to the Lord. Now, I think the greatest reason for the destruction of the Jews would have been to prevent the promised Messiah. Now, if we put the book of Esther in chronological order in the Old Testament, it probably would be the very last book of the Old Testament. The, pro the prophets have already prophesied. They've already uh, come to pass. And here she is. And after that, we have silence, you know, for the next 400 years. And so I think that what's going on here, Satan's trying to put a stop to that promised Messiah because he was promised and he was promised through the Jews, through the Hebrews. And so the best way to do that is to eliminate those whom he would come through. Does that make sense? What a, what a plan, what a scheme for destruction, you know, and this actually is a quite commonly practiced strategy, unfortunately. You remember the Pharaoh, you know, he schemes against the toddler boys in, in Egypt who were Hebrews because the threat was that they would grow up and have some kind of uprising against them. And then remember Herod. When he heard about this new promised king, what does he do? He commands that every boy, baby boy be killed from the ages of zero to five so that this king would not see the throne because he felt threatened by it. And so likewise, Satan also plans and he strategizes. And I believe that it is for the prevention of that promised Messiah. And again, the, the, the part of the strategy here that he uses, again, is to, to, dis, to destroy, obviously. But look at the strategy for destruction. He, what he does is he fuels idolatry. And we need to be cautious of that. Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. See, Haman was high on himself. Oh, he was thinking he was the bee's knees. He was thinking he was the guy, right? The big cheese. He's forgetting that the king is over him sometimes. He's highly exalted, if you will. He's thinking that he's worthy of people's honor and praise and worship. Ooh, this is very idolatrous, isn't it? We have to be careful about this. It's like when, uh, you know, you really like something like your phone or your tablets or your video games or whatever. And then he meets Mordecai and he's experiencing this high, this joy, and then something gets taken away from him that he doesn't really feel comfortable with, his pride, because Mordecai doesn't respond. It's kind of like when we take the video games or the tablets or the phones away from our children, they get so angry, like they get so offended, like how could you do that to me, you know? It's like this, he's having one of those moments because he feels that he is supreme above all. And so like that, Satan uses that, that sense of self-idolatry, that sense of me being prime, 
you know, and awesome and whatnot. And so let us be reminded that, that of the words of Christ, in fact, in moments like this, so that we're not falling into these schemes, into these temptations to self-exalt, to feel like, hey, you know what? My joy is being stolen from me all the time because of these things that are all around me. He says in John 16, 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you if you are in Christ. So let's ask ask ourselves this, in what or whom do we take joy? And what or who kills the joy in our lives? Because if we take joy from Christ, it's indestructible. No one can take that from you. Do you see that? The joy that comes from Jesus, no one can take away. It's indestructible. Therefore, rejoice in him and not yourself or other things that you have. The joy that comes from idolatrous things will destroy and will be destroyed. Both. Because God reigns and he does not share his glory. And he can do that and he's worthy of that. So here's a takeaway for you. Don't fuel idolatry. Maintain an eternal perspective. As believers, be cautious from idolatry. Be cautious from those things that cause us to feel like we need them, we want them, and it's not the Lord. Maintain that eternal perspective. If our joy is in Christ, it's indestructible. Amen? Another part of Satan's strategy for destruction is self-pride, which goes hand in hand with that idolatry that we see there in Haman. Look at verse 10 through 13 now. So nevertheless, Haman restrained himself from hurting Mordecai at that moment, and he went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons and all the promotions and blah, 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 brag, 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 which the king had honored him. And now he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come uh, with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king yet. See how his joy is lost here in the moment. All of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Do you see the contrast between Esther and Haman here? Haman's self-pride caused him to think of himself of higher value than anybody else, including Mordecai. In fact, he was so arrogant that he would easily eliminate anyone who makes him feel lesser than that is dangerous. That is evil. And Esther, on the, uh, on the contrary, was willing to die for others. And so we have these two different personalities, two different strategies, two different ways of thinking and doing. And here's the thing, though. Christ actually died for us. He raises the bar even more. Philippians 2, 8 says this about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, he didn't make it about himself. Jesus didn't even make it about himself in that moment. He submitted to the plan of salvation. For if he acted in self-interest in that moment, meaning to preserve his body in that moment, and this, this would have meant certain death for us. There would be no justification. There would be judgment and destruction to all. So self-pride is part of a destructive plan. Be, beware of that. Uh, here's another takeaway for you guys. Bad influences are also part of a destructive plan. Bad influences are destructive. Did you know that? <clears throat> Sometimes we surround ourselves with those who tell us what we want to hear, don't we? They pump our ego tires. They make us feel good about ourselves, and that's why we like to be around them, and they feed us that self-pride. 
They make us feel like we're more significant than we ought to be. And for some reason, we love that kind of thing. And that's what Haman does. He goes after selfish and foolish counsel. Verse 14, he says this, it says this, Then his wife Zeresh, which, by the way, she's a super creepy wife, if you ask me about it. Like, look at what she says. And all of his friends said to him, Let gallows 50 cubits high be made. That's 75 feet high. That's pretty tall. Be made, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Goodness sake. So then go joyfully, and then be happy with the king, and go to the feast. And this idea really pleased Haman. What kind of counsel is that? Like, if I was married to a woman like that, I'd really think twice about my life, really. Like, she's willing to, what is she willing, what is she capable of, is what I'm thinking. Isn't that a little bit creepy? Is it just me? Right? And so, in other words, what's bothering you? Take him out. Who cares about him? Nobody does, but God does. God cares about life. You know, all life is valuable to him because he creates it. Proverbs 12, 15 says this, and I want to actually point it out because it hit me pretty good when I was studying this. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. See, that word listens, it's actually in the Hebrew, shema, and that's to hear intelligently, to actually discern the wisdom. It's very important to do that. And so, yes, we have to intelligently listen to the words that are coming because who you receive advice from matters. Here's another takeaway for you guys. Who you receive advice from matters. If you receive advice that contradicts the will of God, discard it. That advice is destructive in nature, right? So here's some good advice. Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Again, this creepy advice from his creepy wife, I don't know what else to call her, sorry guys, has no regard for the sanctity of life. And that is the result of self-interest, self-pride, idolatry of self. Do you see that? This is destructive planning. I had mentioned to you in the beginning the law of gravity. Remember that? What goes up must come. I also mentioned to you Murphy's Law, which says anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Here's another one for you. The law of reaping and sowing. And that is, I believe, a very important lesson we can get from this particular passage here. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 8. So the plan for eternal life is Jesus. Amen? The plan for salvation is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ through his gospel, through what he does for us. There is salvation. There is restoration. There is pardon of sin. There's reconciliation. There's sanctification. There's a transformation that happens in our life. Why? Because he provides he provided a way for us to be able to be reconciled to the Lord, and that was through the life, death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. His gospel justifies us. His gospel gives us that assurance of faith that one day we will be in eternal glory with our Creator. Amen? And that's because of that plan for salvation that the Lord geniusly engineered and executed, right? He moved according to it. And so let me ask you this. What are we planning what are we sowing? 
What plan are you a part of? May be used, may we be used, and this is my prayer for us today. May we be used as part of God's plan for salvation and be far removed from any schemes for destruction. So let's consider our surroundings. Let's consider the things that we're achieving. Are we delaying? Are we moving into action? Are we well equipped for the, the glory that's ahead? Amen. And to be responsible and, and just so eager to do what the Lord has called us to do. I pray that we are. So let's bow our heads today and come to the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we do ask that you would use us for your amazing plan for salvation. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that we're able to experience just the restoration that comes from you. And, and, and that we're able to just be free, Father, from that which is oppressive, Lord. And we know we can come to you and bring to you our hurts, our troubles, and be encouraged by you and be strengthened by you. Lord, help us, Lord Jesus, move forward strategically and in faith according to your will, according to your world, word, and, and that we may be far removed from the schemes of the devil. And that instead we would be strong opposition to it. And so I pray for each and every one here today. I know that you are doing great things in our lives. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.